0: You are listening to Behind the Ballot Box, Jewish Values and Our Vote, with Rabbi Jesse Olitsky and Friends, a JCAST Network podcast. For more information about this and other JCAST Network podcasts, please visit JCASTNetwork.org. And don't forget to vote. Welcome to Behind the Ballot Box Jewish Values and Our Votes. I'm your host, Rabbi Jesse Olitsky of Congregation at Bethel in South Orange. We understand that the Jewish vote is not monolithic, and with just over three months until Election Day, we understand that there are so many issues at stake in November's election. Each week we focus on a specific issue and how the Jewish community is responding to that issue, speaking to different rabbinic leaders and different Jewish communal thought leaders. Today we'll be focusing specifically on the climate crisis that our entire planet is facing. And I'm excited to have a conversation today with Nigel Savage. Nigel is CEO and founder of Chazon, the largest Jewish environmental organization in our country, an Englishman trapped in New York City. Welcome, Nigel. It's wonderful to have you on the pod.
1: Hi. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Rabbi Letsky. Very happy and honored to be
0: here. Thank you so much. Nigel, I'm wondering if you could begin by telling us a little bit about Chazon, an organization that you founded in 2000.
1: Yeah, so... A big chunk of Jewish life in the recent period has felt backwards looking. It felt like we were against anti-Semitism and we were against the attacks on Israel. And I, I share that, but my question is not just what are we against, what are we for? Not just where have we come from? Where are we going? What is our vision? And in particular, the greatest crisis of our era, as you said, and it's chronic, not acute, is the climate crisis. In either Jewish tradition can't speak to it In which case, frankly, why should we care? Why should any of us in any way be involved? Or if Jewish tradition is important and wise and rich, which we say that it is, then it has to be the case that we find ways to point ourselves outwards. And both, on the one hand, as an organized community to make a difference, and looked at in a different way that we we re-interrogate the tradition to ask fresh questions and see fresh wisdom. And so ultimately, Kazan is about pointing the Jewish community outwards to make a difference on the climate crisis and sustainability and using that process to strengthen Jewish life. Uh,
0: A year ago, just about a year ago, Greta Thunberg was the the talk uh, of the town. Admittedly, I'm Cole Nidre. I gave a sermon focusing on her, really inspired by her work, inspired by the two million plus students from over 250 countries across the world who participated in a strike, uh, walking out of their schools and striking because of this global climate crisis. Many in our own community, many of our own students participated as well. What happened that she's no longer the talk of the town, she even uh, achieved I think, her greatest success in agitating and aggravating President Trump is it that we're in a pandemic and so that that's, she's not on people's minds and that movement is not on people's minds right now?
1: So, so yeah, so first of all, I want to say that, that the office of Khazan that, of course, I haven't been to for five months is downtown. And as it happens, I went out the day that she arrived by boat uh, in New York Harbor and was surprisingly moved. Like I was really moved to tears to see this sort of pint-sized teenage kid Getting off a boat with literally thousands of people welcoming her there. And there's something really profound about the way that Jewish tradition teaches, you know, every person makes a difference. Every person individually has unique value. And actually, she's she's touched the cord because of who she is and what she's done, and her vision and her determination on the one hand. And because she herself would say, like, you know, I'm just one kid, I'm speaking truth to the grown-ups. What is your problem? So then we come, I think, to the psychology of the climate crisis and yes i think it's definitely moved backwards in the recent period we are as human beings kitted out to handle immediate crises like if we break our leg we are writhing in agony on the ground and we need immediate treatment if we have a heart attack we need immediate treatment and covid has been the most extraordinary immediate challenge to human life and well-being on the planet and it swept all sorts of other things behind it and yet of course it's striking that the health metaphors really work and humongous numbers of people die of cancer die of heart disease and as a society over a multi-year and a multi-decadal period you know we look back at those ads from the 1950s smoke Chestertons, they're good for your throat with complete disbelief and the process of slowly but surely Changing how we live on the world, we 7 billion people, so that we actually live more sustainably, more equitably, more peacefully, is literally the task of the remainder of this century. And it's moved off the front pages because of COVID. But in a different sense, COVID is a metaphor for if we don't change our behaviors, the world will come and bite us.
0: I think about how the very beginning of the democratic primary process each candidate was focused on the climate crisis, that that was the most existential threat to humanity. And I think you're exactly right that in a pandemic, uh, because this is our current most existential threat in the moment, are are we forgetting the long-term effects of the climate crisis because of this pandemic?
1: Yes, and I I want to note that it's one of the slight strangenesses of the United States (laughs) That this is almost the only country in the world in which this is a party political issue. So, for example, when David Cameron became leader of the Tory Party, the Conservative Party in Britain, his first day as leader of the Tory Party, this is more than a decade ago, he rode his bike to work to make a statement about climate and sustainability. Boris Johnson, as the Tory Mayor of London, rode his bike around town. Um, If you Google Margaret Thatcher UN, climate crisis. Margaret Thatcher, who was the right-wing Prime Minister of Britain at the same time that Ronald Reagan was Prime Minister in the United States, Margaret Thatcher was a chemist. She studied chemistry at Oxford in undergrad and she gave a huge speech to the United Nations more than 25 years ago saying, here is the science, this is the defining crisis of our era and the United Nations, every government in the world Every institution in the world needs to swivel to address this. And I, 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 I'm sad, and, and, and it, you could write a separate PhD on how and why there are people in the United States, both liberals and conservatives, who somehow or other have grown to assume that this is, as it were, a party political issue, but it really isn't. It's a human issue. Because
0: this is such a partisan issue in the United States, How do you lead in the largest Jewish environmental organization in the country work to make this an issue that the entire Jewish community should be worried about and involved in?
1: Well, I think that... uh, uh, (laughs) Going back to what I said at the very start about Jewish tradition coming fresh in new ways, one of the lines that I'd grown up with and many of us had grown up with, and at a certain point it sounds almost cliched, is the line from Pirkei Wisdom of the Ancestors. You're not required to complete the task, but neither can you desist from it. And to some extent, every election matters, every institution matters, but this is not a topic that is suddenly gonna go away. And that's one of the things that truthfully makes it really hard. As a a society, we, we don't react well to things where we can't define success right? Many of the big human struggles end slavery, end apartheid in South Africa, get the Russian Jews out of the Soviet Union. You could define success in one sentence. And on top of that, you could also say, those are the bad people, I'm not bad, right? They're racist, I'm not racist. This is the evil Soviet regime, I'm not an evil Soviet. Whereas firstly, on this topic, there is no likelihood in our lifetime of seeing the headline in the New York Times, great news, climate change fixed, go back to how you were. Huge challenge that we need to really notice and think about. How do we each respond to that? And then, secondly, there aren't really bad guys. I mean, there are all sorts of people who have behaved badly in relationship to the climate crisis, but fundamentally, every one of us, certainly in the West, has simply grown up in a world that is literally unsustainable. So, The task, I think, is to find ways to help Jewish communities address this topic. And by the way, of course, it's not just Jewish communities. It's what Catholics are doing in their community. It's what every area or neighborhood is doing. But um, for every Jewish institution, I think one by one, we have to start to say, who are we as a shul? Who are we as a day school? Who are we? as a camp, why do we exist? What are our values? And I, and in fact, before I say more on this, let me actually say a word, uh, sort of ask you the question, both to you as a rabbi and to Bethel as a congregation. Like literally, why does Bethel exist and and why are you a rabbi?
0: It's a powerful question. Um, I, a rabbi, because I believe my role and our role as Jewish people are to be God's partners in creating the world that god sought to create uh, the utopian gone eden garden of eden that was the initial goal of society and the place that humanity was to cultivate and i believe our job as jewish community is to be as the prophet isaiah said to be a light unto the nation's belief that the wisdom and the ethics and values of our tradition are not just meant to be studied, are not just meant to be chanted from the Bema, are not just meant to be taught to our children, but are meant to be used to spread to the masses because it's a way that we can make this world a better
1: place. So that's a beautiful answer. It's none of my business, but as it happens, I agree with everything that you said. And I simply want to note that literally in the words that you used, there was nothing in there about go to shore lunch about morning. There was nothing in there about whether you do or don't use your phone on Shabbat. There was nothing in there about how you keep kosher, whether you keep kosher, or in what way you keep kosher, right? You were talking about about the world. You were talking about vision. You were were talking about Jewish tradition as this large thing that engages the wholeness of it. And so that's where I think that there is a, a mismatch between organized Jewish life on the one hand and the climate crisis on the other hand. And I think that the challenge... It's funny that the, the words of this year have been swivel and pivot, but to, but to sort of make a deeper, long-term swivel. So to just give an example of, of what I mean, and I'll, I'll drop this back to the election right at the end, but I, I want to really make a larger point. I think as it happens that you arrived at Bethel in, in, in July of 2014. And what's interesting is that, that, that deliberately or accidentally you were cycling with Jewish time because you arrived just before the Shemitah year, just before the sabbatical year in Jewish life. And as we go into a new sabbatical year, a year from now, September of 2021, you will have been at Beth El for seven years. I don't think Jewish institutions have thought well enough about a seven year time cycle. There's no shul that doesn't treat Shabbat as different than a Tuesday. There's no shul that doesn't treat Hanukkah as different from Pesach. And yet we don't sufficiently yet think about the Shemitah year, the sabbatical year, and the seven-year cycle. And I think it's a really interesting thing. It would be an interesting thing for Bethel, but implicitly any, shul, any institution that anybody listening to this is a part of, to take that Shemitah year, that sabbatical year, well, to take the period from now until next year, this coming year, to think about the Shemitah year, the sabbatical year, how will that year be different in our community than the other six? and then to use that year to flesh out a seven-year vision. And around the climate crisis, nobody has enough time, nobody has enough money, everybody feels guilty. Everybody at some point says to me, I feel terrible that I don't recycle, or we have one car too many, or I'm on a plane too much, whatever it may be. But imagine Bethel between now and the end of the Shemitah year, committing to a seven-year vision of the community and saying, by September of 2029, at the end of the next seven year, full seven year cycle in Jewish life. We want to be best in class around environmental sustainability. We don't even yet know what that means, but as a synagogue, we want to be a leading synagogue. In South Orange, we want to be a leading faith community. We want to change the food that we eat and serve. We want to develop a food policy. We want to ask. Where does our food come from? How are the workers treated? How's the land treated? How are the animals treated? Do we, use, do we serve soda? Why or why not? Do we use plastic bottles? Why or why not? Do we serve meat? Why or why not? What about food justice? What about the interfaith piece? What about food policy in our town and our state and our country, right? What energy do we use? Do we have bike racks in front of the synagogue? What would it mean to put in in showers so that people could ride their bikes to shul and then have a shower and then come to services or classes? And one of the challenges of the climate change is that all of the things that I just sketched out are too big and too overwhelming if we have to try and think about that over the next three months or six months. But going back to the aphorism about we don't have to complete the task, but neither are we free to desist from it, what would it be And I I say this both rhetorically, but quite literally, and indeed I really, even as I'm saying this, like as a congregational rabbi and leader, with all of the challenges that you face, pastoral responsibilities, raising money, buildings falling down, Barabbas Mitzvah, like you will know it better than I do. But as I say, the first step towards driving systemic change is simply to name this as central to Jewish life to commit our institution to it, to commit ourselves to it multi-year, and to align ourselves with Jewish teaching in a very open-ended questioning way. Thoughts, comments, feasible, not feasible, inspiring, challenging, what do you think? No, I think that's really
0: inspiring. I think the idea of looking at institutional planning in that seven-year cycle, uh, looking at that sabbatical year, that shemitah year, Uh, is very powerful uh, from any sort of visioning process that all Jewish institutions should do and looking at it, especially uh, from the climate uh, crisis. uh, The small things go a long way and the small things sometimes seem um, too large when we look at an immediate change, but when we have a plan in place, that's how that change comes. Using using our intellect to make that happen i think of torah i think of when god created humanity in the garden of eden and uh, told adam told eve that when it comes to the land that you should subdue the land and sforno focuses on the idea that subdue the land doesn't mean that they should conquer earth with muscular power but they, they should subdue it, meaning that humanity in this uh, evolutionary chain, uh, in the survival of, of the fittest, where we're at the top of the food chains, we, we have superior intellect. And what does that mean? That means that we need to use our intellect to cultivate the land, to sustain the land, to protect this planet, this original garden of Eden that God had created. And the only way to do that is through real thought process, to be proactive instead of reactive, to not say we need to make a change immediately, but really what can we do in the next seven years if given the opportunity?
1: And again, it's not just that I agree with that, and I really do, but I want to bring it down again in a slightly different way. So I just want to imagine in the Hebrew school of Bethel with the Bar and Bat Bar Mitzvah kids, not just teaching them the umpteen places in Jewish tradition that we have regard for how we live with the world, but then to say to them, you're all doing science in schools, figure out the carbon footprint of Bethel, and you start to critique it and make some recommendations to us, the adults. Right? Go to the Department of Sanitation and figure out where our waste goes to, and let's figure out how we reduce our waste stream. Do we have composting here? Well, if we do, that's great. And if we don't, will you help us figure this out? Do we grow any food here? Well, let's figure that out together. and And many of these things which on the one hand can't be fixed overnight and so that's a problem when you open the time scale and you engage people it suddenly turns out to be a different thing and we all know that a shul is a place where like if you happen to love laning then like that's your thing or you're a person who loves to make the minion midweek then that's your thing right or if you love to help at kiddush then that's your thing Part of engaging these topics openly actually enables shuls to bring new people into leadership, to fire up people who are already involved and to bring new people in through the door. And then all of this I think then, then loops back into the electoral question. Because again, those of us who've grown up with the tradition and love it, at some level believe that Jewish tradition is good and wise. But some of them believe that at least at the margin, it helps us, encourages us to be better people. Like we want to believe that we're good people. We want to believe that the Jewish community has been on the right side of the big issues. And it's my experience that people feel guilty about sustainability. And it's one of the things that actually blocks them from doing stuff. Privately, people feel like I'm not doing enough, I'm a bad person, easier not to address it. As a shul in a community, slowly but surely, start to move forward on these pieces one starts to feel that one has standing then to raise one's voice and that then is a moment to reach out to the local catholic church to the mosque to the gurdwara and say let's do a joint thing with our communities and invite all the candidates for local office and come and talk to us about environmental issues because as faith communities we have different language in the jewish community we have this the Catholic Church, the Pope did the encyclical, like it's different everywhere, but all of our traditions have language about protecting and preserving the world, let's together do that, and suddenly it's a way to build relationships within the community, and it's a way to engage with elected officials and candidates, and it's a way to put the force of the Jewish community behind it. In my experience in DC, and it's not that we've done so much of this over the years, but we've done some of this. At least historically, some of that consensus is breaking down now. But for a long time, there was a very formulaic interaction between Jews and elected officials in DC, and the Jews would come in and say we care about Israel, and the elected official would say I support Israel, and the Jews would say I'm against anti-Semitism, and the elected officials would say I'm against anti-Semitism. Didn't go very deep. When as a faith community, you go in and you say on behalf of the Jewish community, we want to speak up around sustainability. We want to speak up for the Green New Deal. I think that people pay attention in a new way because it's actually less formulaic and people are interested.
0: You mentioned the Green New Deal. Uh, I want to talk about that for a second, Uh, going back to your mention of how partisan this conversation is in this country. Uh, the Green New Deal is really made up of um, two bills, right? There's um, the House Resolution 109 that AOC, that Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez sponsored, and there's Senate Resolution 59 uh, that Senator Markey of Massachusetts sponsored, um, that never really came to fruition. Even when it was brought to the Senate floor immediately, most Democrats voted present in protest for the early call vote by Republicans. Uh, It seems to be dead on arrival. And yet the uh, proposal of the bill, the passing it from the House was also really more to make a statement about what those candidates, what those elected officials, what those legislators stood for, even if they couldn't turn that bill into law. And a lot of what you're talking about, I find interesting, it's really, what can we do in our own institutions, separate from what policy becomes law, in a way that we need to be the change. We can't wait for those in charge on the local, state, or federal level to make the changes for us.
1: Yes, and and one thing that stands underneath what you've just said, is a sort of like an implicit theory of how social change and social mood converts into legislation. And one of the things that's clearly been interesting in the last three months has been to see the impact of Black Lives Matter after the murder of George Floyd. And on the one hand, this country has a 400-year history of slavery and institutional racism. And you could argue that in one sense, the murder of George Floyd was nothing new. Literally, there are unarmed black men who've been killed by the police this year who were not George Floyd in previous years, and so on and so forth. And yet in practice, it's absolutely clear that something radically has changed in the country, that there was something so evil about a video that people saw and such an intensely visceral reaction that really has swept the country. And it very clearly encompassed people who were radical and people who were not, people who were African American and people who were not. That in due course, it's absolutely clear that the legislative, like legislative change, will unfold over the next five or 10 years, coming from that really clear and deep push in public opinion. And I think that something similar is actually going to happen on climate crisis. And I think that it is certainly possible, like we're speaking right now in August of 2020, like lots of people, this has been a difficult year, a difficult three or four years. It sometimes feels as though, you know, as lucky and privileged as I am in many ways, you know, we're walking around with a cloud around our head. But it could be a case six months from now, not merely that you may have a president in both houses of Congress committed to something like the Green New Deal, but much, much more substantively than that, a very, very, very deep desire for radical change in this country. And I, I want to just give an example of, of what I mean by that, because I think there are two pieces of this. First one is that The Green New Deal, as it has been imagined in in many Western countries, is a big ticket item. It's not inexpensive. And one of the critiques of it, until recently, has been, but it's too expensive, who can afford that? But it turns out that now not once but twice in the last dozen years, the federal government has literally printed trillions of dollars. We did it in 2008. in in response to the financial collapse, and we've done it this year in response to COVID. And I think a lot of people across the country, and not just in liberal states, all sorts of people have been exposed in relationship to healthcare. And one of the key elements of the Green New Deal is essentially saying, shouldn't every American have free healthcare? Wouldn't this country be a better country if we had healthcare for all and invested serious money in our hospitals, in our nurses, in public health, and so on and so forth. I think on the other side of this, this election, there's gonna be a really strong move for that. And so that's how you join, that it's a dotted line between change in a family, a congregation, a community, public opinion, non-profits. This, is, this country is a big, complicated, slow-moving enterprise of checks and balances. But something is shifting.
0: If I could be a pessimist for a moment, how do we respond to those who say we've missed our window, that it's too late, that we've done too much damage to this planet, and no matter what we do, the planet is destroying itself, or we we, we can't change enough or quickly enough to reverse the effects and the impact that we've had, the damage that we've done.
1: So firstly, you know, when you say being a pessimist, six months ago, before all of this, I remember I was speaking somewhere, quite a big, uh, it was Seattle and it was was Fat, it was a big audience. I think I started off by talking about the optimist and the pessimist and the pessimist, I said, says, I just don't see how things could possibly get any worse And the optimist says, oh, I think I can. And um, it's just really ironical because I was saying that basically two weeks or three weeks or four weeks before COVID hit. So this is certainly a year in which it's possible to be pessimistic. Um, I think there are two or three things. Um, Firstly, yes, there is immense damage that has already been done. And one of the things that is implicitly part of a Green New Deal is a word that we're gonna hear a lot more of in the future, which is adaptation. We have to adapt our cities, our schools, our country to changes that frankly are already underway and are unlikely to change in the next 20 or 30 years, even if we all drove a Prius starting tomorrow. So certainly within the next five, 10, 15, 20 years, we're gonna see increased temperatures, increased extreme weather events which means that the process for example of preparing cities for larger and more intense hurricanes and stormwater water drain off and all sorts of things that need to happen that needs to happen and again covid is a fascinating metaphor for this as one by one institutions are opening up like the next time that people walk into your synagogue the synagogue will have adapted to covid in a variety of ways and will have new protocols So we're going to need adaptation across Western societies because of that which has already happened, on the one hand. On the other hand, we're playing really for the long-term future. We have the famous story of Hari HaBagel in the Talmud, who essentially wakes up to the carob trees that were planted 70 years previously. And there are changes that as a human society, you know, babies being born right now, statistically speaking, should be alive in the year 2100. Well, if you look at what's happened in the last five, six, seven years, a big chunk of Western Europe was destabilized by refugees coming out of Syria. And those refugees came out of Syria because of the Syrian civil war, which displaced five million people. And the Syrian civil war was partly caused by drought. And the drought almost certainly was probably caused by anthropogenic human climate change. Well, if we don't change our behavior 30 or 40 or 50 years from now, we could have 100 or 200 million people in the Indian subcontinent become climate refugees because the place literally becomes uninhabitable. And so regardless of whatever changes are underway in the next five or 10 or 15 years, we have to, as a society, make radical changes. We're we're on track for a one or two degrees rise in average world temperatures, whatever we do. But it is not foreordained that we will have average rises of four or five degrees and if if that happens it'll be a cataclysm and we have to make sure it doesn't happen and for that to not happen it's going to be decisions in the next 10 or 15 years that are going to be decisive.
0: Thank you Nigel for this really important conversation. Is there anything that you want to add, any way that Chazon can be of use, anything that we can do to support Chazon's efforts?
1: So thank you. Um, First of all, thank you for doing this. Thank you for inviting me to people who are listening. Thank you for listening. Um, Firstly, vote. Uh, In England, when I was in student political leadership, we used to say vote early and vote often, but certainly vote and vote early if you can, and vote for the candidates who are in favor of addressing sustainability in a serious way. Um, As the Jewish community slowly adjusts to the new normal And as Jewish life starts to pick up after the Chagim in different ways, I simply wanna remind people that the Shemitah year is coming a year from now. Wanna invite you to put it on the agenda of your institution. At Chazon, we have a Chazon Seal of Sustainability, which is intended to help institutions drive systemic multi-year change. We've got about 70 institutions that are in that at the moment, but we're planning to add at least another 100 or so in the next two or three years. You can reach me at Nigel at Hazan.org or Hazan at Hazan.org if you're interested in that. Um, there are a group of organizations in the Jewish community, Dayenu, a Jewish climate action network, work that Meryl Goldsmith is doing in D.C. to engage directly politically as Jews in the political process around the environment. We strongly, strongly encourage that. Um, and um, And don't give up. Have some sense of vision. Like, let's really commit to making a difference.
0: Thank you, Nigel. We can follow Nigel on Twitter at N-I-G-E-L-S-S-A-V-A-G-E and follow Chazon on Twitter at H-A-Z-O-N. And thank you for being a part of this conversation. Until next time, everybody, stay safe, stay healthy, and don't forget to vote.